Quote, I am almost 49 years old. I have been a fugitive for three full years now. I am number one on the FBI wanted list. If I am caught, I will go back to prison for life. They don't even have to catch me for another bank robbery. All they have to do is get their hands on me. End quote. Four things you should know about Slick Willie Sutton. He had a 40-year robbery career. He stole an estimated $2 million. He spent more than half of his adult life in prison, and he escaped from prison three times. Oh, but what an adventure. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Quote, Even to me it makes no sense. I have a safe harbor in Staten Island. I have $50,000 or so stashed around that I could get my hands on with a couple phone calls. And still, I am out here on a cold winter morning putting it all on the line in order to rob a bank for money that I neither want or need. I am not only determined to get this bank, I am determined to get it in my way, even though my modus operandi is so distinctive that I might as well be leaving my calling card behind. End quote. The bank is the Manufacturer's Trust Company in Queens, New York. The bank robber extraordinaire, Willie Sutton. He's been, quote-unquote, casing the place for almost a month. He knows the employees, when they come, when they go, their rotations. He recognizes the cars in the parking lots. He knows the man who opens the bank. He knows when the vault opens. He hadn't always intended to be a bank robber. He was born on June 30, 1901, to William Francis and Mary Ellen Sutton in Brooklyn, New York. He was fourth of five children. He grew up in a section of Brooklyn known as Irishtown. He'd say that Irishtown was wedged between the East River on the north, the Navy Yard on the east, and the Washington entrance to the Brooklyn Bridge to the west. He'd write, quote, the Manhattan Bridge was built when I was nine or ten, and we kids used to drive everybody crazy by clamoring up the structural ironwork, which was going up only a block away from my house, end quote. He lived in a home that was bustling with family and remembered that everyone did something to help the household run. His father was a blacksmith by trade and worked 14 to 16 hours per day, six days a week. Coming home so tired, he'd, quote, could just about come home and have dinner and read a few headlines before he would doze off to sleep, end quote. He recalls his mother as a small woman with sparkling brown eyes whose work was never done. And he would recall they lived pretty well for the time. He'd also remember that it was a tough place to grow up. There were lots of fights and murders that police were too afraid to investigate. Things just went unsolved. He'd say, quote, Lead pipes and brass knuckles were standard equipment, end quote. Crime was a daily occurrence, and no one seemed to get convicted. One more thing, quote, 
a code of silence that was observed in Irishtown would have a powerful influence over my life. Nobody ever talked in Irishtown. End quote. Quote, at the manufacturer's trust, the guard arrived at 8.30, the time lock was released at 9, and the doors weren't open to the public until 10. That was going to give me a half an hour to take the employees under control and another full hour to clean the place out. End quote. Willie Sutton loved the planning. He loved the hunt. He knew that people were habits of routine and slaves to time. He would blend in with the customers and the pedestrians on the street, watching, noting, strategizing. Quote, the main weakness of my M.O., as I know only too well, is that it calls for the use of two other people. Two times I had gone to prison because I have been betrayed by partners whom I had every reason to trust. End quote. He chose Tommy Kling and John De Venuta. They had worked together before and were both good at their jobs. He never considered them as partners, per se, even though they would all get their fair share of the take. They were just there to do the job that they knew best. Although he would say at one time, quote, Tommy is the best partner I ever had, small but tough. He will follow orders without question, end quote. After watching the bank for weeks and filling in Tommy and Venuta in on the details, they secured their getaway car from another state and made it legitimate. Side note, we have Willie Sutton to thank for all of our headaches we have to go through to register a new vehicle at the DMV. During his time, all you had to do was go into the DMV, pick up a registration form, fill it out, and they would stamp it. Done and done. Willie needed new vehicles for every caper, so he would grab a stack of registration forms and, so as not to inconvenience the clerks, I'm sure, he had his own stamp made. And voila, he had a legit vehicle. They found his stash of forms and rubber stamps when they arrested him, so, so the jig was up for him and the rest of us. Forever. Everything was ready to go. One of the best parts of a robbery in Sutton's mind was getting into character. He was sometimes called Willie the Actor Sutton because he used simple disguises to look perfectly normal, just not him. For this particular escapade, he would write, quote, Before going to bed, I dyed my hair to a very light brown, almost bordering on blonde. The following morning, I slipped out of bed early and began to work on my face. I stained my skin to a dark olive complexion. I thickened my eyebrows with mascara. I inserted a couple hollowed-out corks up my nostrils to broaden my nose. From the closet, I took a light gray suit, which was padded and cut to alter my silhouette. Once I was satisfied with my appearance, I put the license plates and the dog chain into my briefcase and slipped out of the house. End quote. Side note, the license plates were for the getaway car so they had one set of plates for the coming in and another set for the going away. One final look in the mirror, and he was ready. Even his own mother wouldn't recognize him. He would say, quote, Disguising myself has always been part of a robbery to me, end quote. He met up with his two accomplices at the garage who were disguising themselves in their own way. He writes, quote, At 8.20 we synchronized our watches and left the car. 
Tommy and I attached ourselves to the fringe of the crowd waiting for the bus, and Venuda took his position across the street. End quote. They watched as the guard, like clockwork, rounded the corner and walked up toward the bank. Sutton calmly made his way toward him. The guard, as per his usual, was reading his paper while he walked up to unlock the door. Sutton crept in close behind him. He'd say, I was so close behind him that I could have been his shadow. End quote. The guard was so deep into his paper he didn't even notice. Sutton tucked his way inside the bank and the guard was still not even aware that he was there. When the guard closed the door and locked it, it wasn't until he turned back around to discover Sutton was now standing in front of him. Taking advantage of the guard's shock, he reached out and grabbed the gun from the guard's holster and pointed it at him. He'd say, quote, Cold as it was, the sweat began to pour out of him. End quote. He escorted the guard to a secluded place where they could talk and explained how vital it was to his life that he cooperated. Side note. While Sutton usually carried a gun, it was rarely loaded because he was afraid someone might get hurt. That was never his intent and apparently made it his entire career and life never injuring another person. He told the guard to open the door and allow his associates in as if they were employees, which he did. Then they went on to follow his usual routine. He turned on the lights opened the safe's cage, and also answered the questions about where the alarm buttons were located. Being carefully shielded from being accidentally spotted by any windows, Tommy and Venuta lined up chairs in two rows facing the vault. One more thing. Sutton took the dog chain he'd brought along with him and attached one end to the guard and the other end to the radiator. Could he get loose? Sure, but not before someone could get there first. It was just a precaution since he had to be so near the door to let employees in. And so it was time. The men took their places. Tommy was waiting behind a partition where the chairs were located, and Sutton was waiting just behind the guard to, um, greet the next bank employees. The guard, whose name was Weston, would open the door allowing them entrance and then lock the door behind them, which was normal. It was just after that a strange man would come over and grab them gently by the elbow and escort them to the row of chairs, quietly explaining what was going on and what they needed to do to remain safe. Quote, Nothing is going to happen as long as we received full cooperation, he'd say. Sutton would say, quote, Knowing what is happening has a calming effect on people. It's the unknown that causes fear. I wanted them obedient, not frightened because frightened people do foolish things, end quote. All the employees had arrived, and they sat in the two rows of chairs, and Willie Sutton regaled them with one-liners and discussed things to keep the tension low. He'd say, quote, Don't worry, folks, it's only money, and it isn't your money, end quote. The assistant manager, Sands, had finally showed up. He was escorted to the row of chairs, as Sutton already knew in advance it would take the assistant and the manager to be able to open the safe. So they waited for Hoffman, the manager, to arrive. Quote, We're not a family that ever had any trouble with the police. Nobody before me, and nobody except me. My mother was a deeply religious woman. We were regular churchgoers, and my brother, Jimmy, who was 15 months older than me, and my sister, Helen, 
remained very active in religious affairs all of their lives. He'd say, quote, When I began to get in trouble, my father never called me down or lectured me. As strong as he was, the man never once raised his voice or lifted a hand toward me. End quote. He would recall that his father worked so hard and still never was able to put money back for savings. He'd say, quote, I'd feel sorry for him because he had to work so hard. And then I was angry. End quote. Willie Sutton had aspirations of becoming a criminal lawyer after his father had been hit by a truck while crossing the street. His collarbone and other bones were broken, so he hired an attorney to sue the driver. They thought their money troubles would be over, only to find out that instead of taking the driver to court, the attorney settled. A few hundred dollars. That's all they got. He was going to become a lawyer and represent the poor people. A, quote, fighter for justice, end quote. It didn't happen. He'd look back and say, quote, I'd have been a good lawyer. I'm sure of that. The line between bank robber and lawyer is a very thin one, end quote. He'd go on to say, quote, The criminal lawyer, like the criminal, is the enemy of law and order. The criminal attacks society head on. The lawyer is trying to set you free after you've been caught, so you can go out and steal some more. Whether he succeeds or not, he profits from your crime, end quote. So Willie Sutton felt that to be in either occupation, one must hold a grudge against society. Check. He believes that only a minor difference separates the two. One has to have a license that entitles him to rob, and the criminal does not. The only way a criminal can pay the lawyer is out of the money he has stolen and stashed away somewhere. Quote, it isn't called his share of the loot, of course. It's called the fee. End quote. Quote, Mr. Hoffman, you're the bank manager. We know you have the first three numbers of the safe combination, and Mr. Sands, your assistant manager, has the last three. You are going to open the vault for us. If you give me any trouble, I want you to know that some of these here employees of yours will be shot. I don't want you to have any false illusions about that. Now, perhaps you don't care about your own safety, but the health of these here employees of yours are your responsibility. If anything happens to them, the blame will be yours, not mine. End quote. Calmly and methodically, once the vault was open, the tellers were to unlock their drawer banks with their keys next. Since they all planned the robbery prior to the bank opening, all of the money was still inside the vault. The robbers filled the single black silk bag with stacks of bills. When it was almost completely filled to the top, Sutton escorted the staff into the windowless conference room. He had told them that they had all done a fine job and they needed to wait here. He said, all this money is insured by the bank, you don't have to worry about that, or about getting the bank open. Your funds will be replenished probably within the hour from one of your other offices. Now look it. I'm going to go check on something with my partners. I'll be back in a couple minutes. If you've got any ideas, you better get them out of your head. End quote. And during this little pep talk, his partners were outside fetching the car. So when he left the conference room, closing the door behind him, he just kept walking right out the front door. Everything had gone according to plan. They ditched the car, removed the plates, and tossed them in with the money, 
and the three separated, knowing that they would meet up again within the hour. When everyone arrived at the meeting place, the bag was turned over to reveal the goods. Sutton had estimated the take would be around 100000 to 150000 He'd say, quote, When I started to stack the bills, though, each domination in a separate pile, the piles that kept growing higher and higher were the wrong ones, the ones, fives, and tens, end quote. Their take was a disappointing 64000 Only 21000 plus apiece. He'd call it, quote, an artistic success, but a commercial disappointment, end quote. He knew that Tommy would end up blowing his proportion on booze and broads, while Venuda would likely save his or invest it in a new business. Sutton, however, wasn't disappointed with the money brought in. He was disappointed when it was over. He'd say, quote, During the planning of a robbery, you are in a constant state of excitement. From the time you disarm the guard to the time you enter the vault, all of your juices are flowing. The satisfaction of the escape and the temporary sense of happiness that it has come off exactly how you had planned. And then, suddenly it's over. End quote. According to historical Italian documents, patronage was not an option. It was the key to one's social status. Quote, a career and social mobility were impossible apart from being involved in a network of patronage relationships. Notability and credibility went hand in hand, end quote. We may never have heard of Galileo, Michelangelo, or Shakespeare's contributions to science and art if it were not for patrons to allow them not only to create and discover, but to bring them and their work to the attention of others. Those who patroned for creatives not only monetary support, they also helped to introduce them to a wider audience, increasing the respectability for both the patron and the creative. It's true today we trust those who recommend something more than we may find on our own. Now, I would hate for your notability and credibility to go static. I would highly recommend going over to patreon.com to jump into the Bag of Bones podcast Patreon group. Inside, you can choose from five levels of participation, all increasing with a lovely array of gifts to show my appreciation. And in true historic Patreon practices, I'd be most humbled if you would introduce the podcast to your network of relationships. So quickly, before you forget, put this episode on pause and head on over to patreon.com to raise your social status for as little as $2 a month. Allow me to thank you in advance for joining us over at patreon.com, and I look forward to sending off your welcome kit. Thanks for continuing a beautiful, historical tradition honoring both patrons and creatives by allowing our work to continue into the future. Willie Sutton had a favorite aunt, Aunt Alice. She was married to his Uncle John, who also lived with them. She would see more in young William than maybe he saw in himself. He was smart, he was a quick learner, and for some reason Aunt Alice chose to single him out. She was a very sought-after, what we would call today, a personal assistant for the very wealthy. She would plan their lives for them, sometimes having to travel or live with them for a time. She would change the way William saw the world forever. 
He'd say, quote, By the time I was 10 or 12, she was buying me suits that cost 12 or $14. She took me to Broadway shows and the best New York restaurants. We'd walk down Fifth Avenue and people would turn their head to look at her. She tutored me in the social graces, proper etiquette, the manners of a gentleman, and, along with it, the more valuable lesson that manners and etiquette were important not so much in the acts themselves, more as in the statement you were making about yourself, end quote. She taught him, don't be showy, keep your own counsel, know your worth. He took her lessons to heart. He never flashed a big bankroll, and even though he spent good money on clothes, he was never flashy and tried to be understated. But he did, however, discover he enjoyed the finer things in life. And, as usual, I am trying to extend the benefit of the doubt to our string of Bag of Bones characters, and Willie deserves no less, I suppose. He did try to fall along the straight and narrow, for a minute or two. He did hold down jobs, even though he admits to stealing from them, and he did attempt to enlist in World War I when the time came, but he was too young. One of his jobs was for the Edison Company. This taught him how to be something of a repairman. He would use his natural inclinations and actually really enjoyed the work. He'd repair everything from toasters and fans, coffee makers and waffle irons. His boss took notice and liked his personable character. Soon, Willie was dining at the boss's house a couple times a month. The boss saw potential, so he would send Willie home with various trade magazines and technical books that would allow him to improve on his skills. This new knowledge would eventually lead him to more intricate electrical systems that may or may not include burglar alarms. He'd write, quote, Ever anxious to improve myself, I began to spend a considerable amount of time at the library reading up on the operation and installation of even more sophisticated electrical alarm systems for the primary purpose of how to circumvent them, end quote. Now, living in his own apartment, he found himself dating a lot of girls who worked for the theater that lined Broadway. Here is where he realized the potential of theatrical makeup. Not that he wanted to be an actor, quote, only because I could see how valuable the ability to alter one's appearance could be to a thief, end quote. Up until this point, he had been committing smaller crimes. He was honing his skills, working solo on places like shoe stores, insurance agencies, and even escalating to a jewelry store or two. He was creating a persona along the way as well. He'd grown up around the toughs, as he called them, and watched as they bull in a china shopped their way around getting what they wanted, and he decided he wanted no part of that. He was becoming a gentleman thief. Quote, I had only been an occasional thief an amateur. Very shortly after I had walked away from the Edison Company, I became a professional. A professional thief is a man who wakes up every morning thinking of committing a crime the same way any other man gets up and goes to his job, end quote. He didn't have to wait long. Soon he was introduced to the master safecracker that would become his mentor, Eddie Tate, better known as Doc Tate. Most of what he passed on to Willie were things he himself already believed, but became validated as successful. 
Doc Tate would say that under no circumstances would he permit anyone to carry a dangerous weapon. No guns, no knives. He would say, quote, It's better to allow yourself to get captured than to hurt anybody. Jail was an acceptable risk to the profession. End quote. He believed that eventually you'd get out of jail for robbery, but if you kill someone, you'd be in for life. He would remember this advice for the rest of his life. He'd recall Doc Tate saying, quote, You pull the trigger the first time, maybe it would become easier the second. End quote. His loathing for violence would become so well known, the police would automatically clear him from the suspect pool if a violent crime would be committed. Doc Tate would also advise, never commit a crime in the city you live in. They would execute elaborate schemes and plans for entire weeks to be away. Willie didn't follow this one so much. Tate also instilled in Willie the fair share of the loot principle. He'd say, quote, we all take the same chance, we all get the same cut, end quote. With this new acquaintance, not only was Willie Sutton creating his principles, he added a new skill to his resume, safe cracking. He'd boast, anything with a hole, I can open it, end quote. Later, he would recall, quote, In many ways, my year with Doc Tate was the happiest of my life. I was young, I was successful, I had plenty of money and plenty of broads. I was making my reputation. But my apprenticeship had been served and I was eager to go into business for myself, using my own ideas and having total command of the operation. And so he did. Hello, hello. Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. Not being the perfect criminal, and perhaps falling for the wrong girl a time or two, he did his share of time behind bars. There was one time he was arrested as the main suspect in a murder trial, and he was completely innocent. You and I know this because we know how he felt about violence. He had a good idea of who was behind it, but then there was that Irish town code of silence creed that kept him from snitching. They tried to get him to take a plea deal, but even though if the jury found him guilty, he'd go straight to the electric chair, he just couldn't do it. He was a thief, yeah, but he would not go down with his mother thinking he killed someone. On another trial, of a crime he did commit, 
he was sentenced to Sing Sing, the state prison of New York. When he first got in, he figured out how to make the right friends fast. But he was eventually sent to the worst of the worst, Danamora. You may recall this horrid place from our Carl Panzram episodes. The abuse there was so awful it was difficult to retell it to you. If you missed that two-parter of a brutal murderer, you can find it Season 2, Episodes 14 and 15. They get a content trigger, though, just to give you a heads up. Where Willie Sutton wanted to leave this earth doing no harm, Carl Panzram vowed to do as much harm as he could with his short life. What a contrast. Anyway, our boy this week would end up spending a lot of time locked away in a small, dark cell at Danamora, and that was lucky for him. Quote, I began to study. I sent to the International Correspondence School for a course in psychology, end quote. And then he moved on to the classics. He would admit to being so involved with books that he would sometimes skip the meals, lackluster though they may be, he'd say, quote, The worst thing that happens in prison is that after a while your mind begins to rot. They could lock up my body, but I was not going to let them lock up my mind. End quote. After barely surviving one of the worst prison riots in American history in 1929, Sutton was released from Danamora and escorted back to his home state, New York. Quote, it was 1929 when I came out of jail, 28 years old and determined to go straight. Morality didn't have anything to do with it. The only law I was obeying was the law of self-preservation. End quote. Side note. New York by then had recently passed the Bombs Law, which said that if you were found guilty of a felony for a second time, you would automatically receive 30-year sentence. Mandatory. After Danamora, Willie Sutton wanted nothing to do with that. He would come home and marry one of the only people who would correspond with him while he was away. Willie Sutton married Louise Ludman on October 21, 1929. The stock market crashed only a few days later. Soon after that, the legitimate job he was working was forced to let him go, and also, about that time, he found out he was going to be a father. He told his wife that he and a buddy of his from the old days were going into the real estate business. I mean, what other choice did he have? With all those hours being able to, mm, think, he realized he was going after these banks the hard way. He'd been a safecracker, after all. What if he could walk through the front door before the bank or businesses opened and left before any alarms were triggered? He was ready to test his theory. For one bank, he cased the place for a few days and saw that the manager was actually the first one to work and he was alone for 20 minutes before the guard would come in. So, after a few more days, he watched the manager go in, like clockwork, waited a few moments for the alarms to be disengaged, then he made his way inside without any resistance. The room was empty and cavernous. He saw a single light on near the back in a small office. Walking boldly into the office holding a prop gun, he told the man to open the safe or they'd be reading his obituary in the newspaper tomorrow. Quote, I was out of the place with $19,000 before the guard arrived. End quote. But 
He knew it couldn't always be that easy. There was usually always someone who would be in charge of letting people in, either other employees or... Hmm. Then he thought, who would the guards or employees open a door for? Quote, any uniform was like a badge of admission. Any uniform. Policeman, fireman, milkman, Western Union, carpenter, even a window washer. End quote. He hit pay dirt. Quote, During the next six months, we walked in and out of banks as if we owned them. We hit jewelry stores, insurance companies, anything. End quote. They had spread out and started crossing the borders into Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. They were bringing in the loot hand over fist. Quote, the thing that really had the police so confused was that I was using so many different disguises. I would dye my hair different colors. I had sideburns which I could paste on. I had all different types of mustaches. Sometimes I'd wear elevated shoes. I had a whole set of hollowed out corks to alter the shape of my nose. I knew how to use cosmetics to change my complexion. On the spur of the moment, I'd affect the barest hint of a lisp or accent. Never anything really conspicuous, just enough to give the victims something to focus on. End quote. The truth of the matter is, Willie Sutton loved robbing banks. He'd say, quote, I was more alive when I was inside a bank robbing it than at any other time in my life. I enjoyed everything about it so much that one or two weeks later I'd be looking for the next job. End quote. He would move his wife and brand new daughter Jeannie to an English style Tudor house in an exclusive section of Lynbrook. He would use the excuse that the money from a lucky racetrack was funding the lavish gifts he would bring to her. The rest, he said, was because his business was doing so well. But beware a woman scorned. This time, not his wife, actually, but his partner's wife. She had found out that he was cheating on her. So when he decided to choose the mistress over her, she told the police everything. On June 5, 1931, Willie Sutton was sentenced to 30 years at Sing Sing. I'm going to pause the story here because there's just so much more to this unique character that I feel he deserves a part two. I know, I know, I hear you. But what happened with the manufacturer's trust company bank job? Did he get caught? And yes, I hear you. You promised us prison breaks. I promise to tell you all the ridiculous details when we meet up again. I'll pick up where we left off and fill in all the gaps. I will tell you, if you are part of our Patreon group, I found this radio drama from 1950. It has interviews of many of the people who were involved with his crimes, mostly the employees that he encountered <laughs> along the way. I personally love radio dramas, and if you do too, you'll find this one so great, complete with the sound effects and all of the suspense chords. It's so great. And it's available inside of our Patreon group, dropping today. If you are not part of the group, please consider joining us on the inside. You are spoiled with merch and personal engagement with me because I value each and every one of you. It only takes a little bit, but a little bit will help us out so much. 
I am always looking for new ways to spoil our patrons. The day after you sign up, for example, I send off a welcome kit which includes a magnet and a sticker. But that's just the beginning. Plus, <laughs> we're awesome. I mean, I'm sure that that's reason enough to want to jump in. So please do. It's quick and easy, as long as you're not driving. Just head on over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and look up Bag of Bones Podcast. You can look through the five different levels of support and choose whichever one makes you the happiest. And I will personally write out your welcome. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and look up Bag of Bones Podcast. If you want to get to know us a little better before you jump in, come and hang out at our Facebook and Instagram at Bag of Bones. However you choose to participate, I can't wait to meet you. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, edited by Katie Bougeret Caldwell, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. <laughs>